Hello, my name is Peter Um. I'm from Scripps Clinic in San Diego. Happy to be here at RWCS. My title is Opting Neuritis in SLA. So my case is about reaching the correct diagnosis of opting neuritis, which is considered a MS spectrum disorder uh, due to demyelinating and inflammatory process. Uh, multiple sclerosis, lupus, and NFOSPIT syndrome can be very hard to distinguish from each other, but it is crucial to find the correct diagnosis because treatment approach differs vastly. All three predominantly affect female in childbearing age, and there are increasing amounts of case reports uh, due to NFOSPIT syndrome cases misdiagnosed as MS later uh, improved with anticoagulation. So our patient is 32-year-old female with history of SLE and triple positive NFOSPIT syndrome antibody status who presented with three-month history of blurred left eye vision. She works in insurance industry and uh, she, when she reads, she was skipping letters and color looked different, so she was making tons of calculation mistakes. Uh, SLE was diagnosed in 2012 with thrombocytopenia melanoma rash, and she has been asymptomatic in the past nine years on plaquenil monotherapy. History was notable for similar attack involving the opposite eye in 2017 that improved gradually, and then uh, her eye symptom got worse after taking a hot shower. MRI showed numerous non-specific T2 signal abnormalities, including cerebral peduncle and cerebellar peduncle. Other lesions are thought to be artifacts, but these lesions are more significant. Autoimmune labs and MRIs often cannot distinguish between uh, CNS lupus, multiple sclerosis, and antiphospholipid syndrome. Our patient had high titer ANA, 1 to 640, uh, but normal C3, C4, DSDNA, normal inflammation markers. Uh, she did have neuronal cell antibody, and also CSF showed oligoclonal band, elevated IgG, and myelin basic protein antibody. All of these can be seen in both multiple sclerosis and neuropsychiatric lupus. And as we know, uh, all three diagnoses, lupus, MS, NFOSPIT syndrome, they can have um, higher prevalence of NFOSPIT syndrome antibodies, so they, could, they cannot distinguish between these three. And MRI of all three uh, different entities can show non-specific MRI abnormality. So her history gave us the clue for the correct diagnosis. The fact that she had similar attack in 2017 suggested relapsing remitting nature of the myelinating process. Also, she had autoph phenomenon, which is that uh, um, when she goes into the hot shower with core body elevation, um, her vision got worse and was reversible by uh, core temperature cooling, which is a feature of MS patient. About 60 to 80% of MS patient has it. So she did not meet the strict McDonald criteria for MS diagnosis. However, we believe that she has MS spectrum disorder and she's at high risk of developing MS in the next five years. Her vision improved gradually with solimedrol, uh, followed by prednisone taper. We are monitoring her closely with serial MRI. In conclusion, we think uh, she has optic neuritis uh, due to demyelination process. 
not all vision symptoms in lupus patient is due to lupus. And also, uh, it is important to rule out anti-phosphate syndrome if any MS patient present with atypical features such as headache or normal CSF. Thank you. Hi, my name is Tiffany Hong and I'm a first year fellow at the University of California, Irvine. And today at the RWCS, um, I'm presenting my poster, Kids Are Not Little Adults, Considerations for Pediatric Rheumatology Patients Transitioning to Adult Care. So my clinical question was, are there any nuances that adult providers should know about patients who are transitioning from pediatric to, rheumato uh, to adult rheumatology care? And so I did a literature search on PubMed along with um, common references like UpToDate and also Rheumatology Secrets. Um, and first, I looked at JIA and their specific and their uh, subsets of JIA. And I found that there are, um, in the pediatric population, they tend to have more, for example, TMJ involvement. And I think that our adult rheumatologists should keep that in mind as they're taking care of patients with the diagnosis of JIA, despite having multiple subsets underneath that diagnosis. I also looked at the uveitis screening for JIA and compiled a different um, recommendations from different bodies such as the ACR, the British uh, Society, um, and also the Pediatric uh, Rheumatology Society Association um, of Japan as well. Um, for pediatric versus adult onset lupus, um, I found that adult providers should uh, consider the risk of AVN in their patients and also of uh, premature atherosclerosis um, and osteocoronary artery disease in their patients. In pediatric and versus adult onset dermatomyositis, I think some of the highlights are that in the pediatric onset population, there's not as much ILD, but rather more abnormal PFTs and also um, calcinosis that may occur even 20 years after their diagnosis. So something that an adult uh, rheumatologist should keep in mind. Um, and finally, I wanted to touch base on the uh, transition um, of uh, pediatric patients to um, adult care. Um, and I think there are three different um, categories that the adult provider should really think about how the pediatric patient really needs to kind of accomplish both medical, non-medical, and psychosocial um, benchmarks as they're transitioning to um, adult care. Um, thank you so much uh, for uh, listening to my talk today. Hi, my name is Leah Stolier. I'm a second year rheumatology fellow at Stanford, and I'm presenting this interesting case of muscle involvement in polyarteritis nodosa um, here at the uh, Rheumatology Winter uh, Clinical Symposium. Uh, so this is a, um, so just to preface, preface this, um, muscle involvement in polyarteritis nodosa um, is an important manifestation to be aware of, but that, that is pretty rare um, to identify. Um, so this is a case of a 61-year-old man who presented with one month of very severe muscle pain and weakness, particularly in the calves. Um, notably, he had had a significant 20-pound weight loss over the preceding month. He had also developed um, orchitis in the interim as well. Um, when he, on his physical exam, he had uh, very notable atrophy in the bilateral calves. 
Um, on lab testing, interestingly enough, as you can see here, um, his inflammatory markers were very high, but his muscle enzymes were actually normal. Um, specific autoimmune testing that was done, which was including ANCAs, um, ANA, uh, myomarker panel, were all normal. Um, he then had an MRI, which prompted this whole uh, further evaluation. Um, notably on this MRI, um, the, you can see here that there was diffuse edema of the um, abdominopelvic and proximal thigh musculatures, which you can see um, actually on this uh, image here. And this was reflective of a nonspecific myositis. Um, he then had uh, an EMG that was done, which was generally normal without any evidence of uh, myopathy or neuropathy. Um, what really cinched the diagnosis was his muscle biopsy. Um, so on his muscle biopsy, he had um, leukocytoclastic medium vessel arteritis, which as we know, um, is diagnostic of polyarteritis nodosa. Um, he was very soon started on uh, steroids, methylprednisolone one mg um, per kilogram, and he had a very rapid improvement of his pain. Um, he was tapered down on the steroids over the subsequent months, um, and then in his outpatient follow-up, he was started on methotrexate, later switched to azathioprine for personal reasons. Um, and even to this day, as I follow him in clinic, he continues to do very well and ambulates without any pain. Um, important information to know about muscle involvement in polyarteritis nodosa. It is a very rare condition still. Um, there were only, in a 2019 um, review, there were only 19 cases that were identified in the literature. Um, it involves the um, fascial plane supplied by the um, small to medium blood vessels, um, and it doesn't cause actually a primary myositis. Histiologic features to be aware of um, are necrotizing small and medium vessel vasculitis, fibrinoid necrosis, and a mixed vasculitic um, inflammatory uh, infiltrate. Um, most commonly, this is actually really key to remember, most commonly this, this uh, involves the uh, lower extremities, particularly the calf muscles in particular. Um, fever is commonly reported and muscle enzymes, when you check them, are most often normal actually, um, instead of elevated, as we see in inflammatory myositis. And then there are several radiographic features um, that can be seen on MRI, um, including um, uh, T2-weighted imaging showing um, diffuse or, or Apache um, infiltrates, and then this cotton wool um, appearance of the MRI as well. Um, very notably, the condition responds well to steroids, which are actually first-line therapy. Um, there are options for um, steroid-sparing therapy um, for maintenance, which include methotrexate and azathioprine, and in very severe cases, one can consider cyclophosphamide, rituximab, or IVIG. So in, in conclusion, um, it's very important to consider polyarteritis nodosa with muscle involvement in patients with um, normal, with, uh, normal muscle enzymes, high inflammatory markers, symptoms otherwise of polyarteritis nodosa like orchitis. Um, and uh, the disease actually does respond very well to treatment, including steroids. Uh, thank you. Hi, I'm Rashmi Dittal. I'm a first-year rheumatology fellow at UCSD here at RWCS 2022. I'm going to talk to you about my posture today, which is called hospitalization due to serious infection in adolescents and young adults with SLE. Uh, so SLE uh, 
patients have a higher risk of infection compared to general population, which if serious can lead to hospitalizations. We were specifically interested in adolescents and young adults because of data suggesting dis uh, disruption in care and delays uh, during transition of care during this time period. And also there have now been prior studies specifically looking at rates, predictors and outcomes of uh, infection-related hospitalizations in these young um, SLE patients compared to older patients. So for our study, we uh, used a large U.S. inpatient database called the National Inpatient Sample, which represents about uh, 35, uh, 35 million hospital discharges uh, per year. And we categorized patients as um, adolescents, young adults, late adults, and older adults to study um, rates of infection-related hospitalization over a 10-year study period. So we found that patients... Um, oh, sorry. Okay. okay, so we found that patients with SLE have a higher rate of infection-related hospitalization compared to non-SLE patients across all these categories. Um, also, interestingly, young adults with SLE, so adults 18 to 24 years with SLE, had an infection-related hospitalization rate that was higher than late adults and similar to older adults over 50 years of, of age. Um, also, length of stay and... Um, cost of hospitalization was similar in young adults compared to late and older adults with um, SLE. So uh, to highlight some of the limitations of, uh, of the study, although um, NIS database is a large nationally representative database, um, some uh, limitations um, include uh, use of ICD codes used for billing, as well as cross-sectional nature of the database with no information on labs, imaging, and immunosuppressive medications, which would have been important for our study question of infection-related hospitalization. Now, so to conclude, um, young adults with SLE have a rate of infection-related hospitalization higher than old, um, late adults and similar to older adults over 50 years of age with um, similar length of stay and um, hospitalization cost, and the reasons for this finding needs to be explored further. Hello, my name is uh, Samarika Sapkota. I'm from University of Colorado, and the title of my poster is COVID-19 triggered anti-MDA5 antibody. Is it an innocent bystander or the culprit? Uh, so this is a case report on a 41-year-old male who has a med past medical history of cold agglutinin disease and is on rituximab. Um, he actually gets COVID-19 infection and presents to the emergency department with shortness of breath, tachycardia, tachypnea. And as we can see in this picture on at the time of presentation, you know, he has these dense consolidations on his CAT scan. So obviously the initial thought is this is COVID-19 pneumonia. So he gets treated with IV antibiotics and he also gets remdesivir and decadron. But as we can see in this picture, the course um, uh, in terms of his respiration throughout his hospitalization continues to get worse. So as we can see here on day 21, and by this time he's already completed multiple courses of IV antibiotic. He's on IV Bactrim for the presumed uh, PJP pneumonia infection, which 
ultimately turns out to be negative. He is on, he got a course of steroid and he's currently on high dose steroid. And he also gets a course of IVIG. But despite all these intervention, he's still on 60% FiO2 and the CAT scan is showing these areas of pneumomediastinum. He has ground glass opacities. So he's, he continues to get worse. And we can see that on day 47, uh, he is at this point of time on high dose steroid. He's, he's on azathioprine for concern of ILD and ILD flare up. And uh, he's still on 80% FiO2. And as we can see in this picture, there is presence of the diffuse ground glass opacities. We can see the pneumothorax. We can see a rim of pneumomediastinum here. And there is some evidence of reticulation and fibrosis as well. So overall, you know, his course is continues to get worse. He has an extensive workup for what could be going on here. Um, so he had a broad infectious workup, which were all overall unremarkable, except for positive COVID-19 PCR, which we knew about, and positive rhinovirus. And also for autoimmune-associated interstitial lung disease, he had an extensive workup. The result of that showed actually positive MDA5 antibody. And also in, um, during the hospital stay, he developed these rashes, which is a papular pruritic rash. We get a skin biopsy of that, that shows evidence of interface dermatitis and perivascular lymphocytic infiltrate. So with this NSIP looking pattern, this MDA5 antibody and these rashes with interface dermatitis, the question remains, is this a clinical amyopathic dermatomyositis or is this a persistent COVID-19 infection? So with that question, he gets transferred to the university hospital. And uh, you know, at that point, uh, we initially treat him as clinical amyopathic dermatomyositis. He is still on high dose steroid. He gets, uh, he's transitioned to MMF and he gets a course of plasma exchange at that point. However, we do get additional information and I feel like the infectious disease colleagues were very helpful in that, that his IgG level was profoundly low. It was less than 75. We, he still has positive COVID-19 PCR. And remember, this is already three months out in his course. And uh, the, the infectious disease docs recommended sending a reverse transcriptase PCR, which actually was consistent with active replication of COVID-19. So our conclusion at that point was, you know, this is actually a persistent and active COVID-19 infection leading to lung injury and NSIP pattern and also leading to these rashes as well. So we, um, uh, we de-escalate his uh, immunosuppression. He gets another course of remdesivir. Um, he gets monoclonal antibodies against COVID-19. And, you know, at this point, he's doing better than what he was doing in the hospital. He's still on three liter of oxygen, still has some lung, you know, he has a, quite a bit of lung damage. Uh, but he is on a pretty minimal dose of prednisone and overall recovering. So I think at this, you know, the main uh, highlight of this poster is showing similarities and differences between these two clinical entities, COVID-19 infection and clinical amyopathic dermatomyositis. As we know that MDA5 is a major sensor for recognizing COVID-19 uh, particle. So it's very plausible that when we have COVID-19 infection, we can have production of MDA5 uh, antibody during active infection. At the same time, we know that uh, we always think about typical rashes in clinical amyopathic dermatomyositis, like Gautron's papules or mechanics hand, but these can certainly be poss possible and positive in uh, COVID-19 infection as well, as well as presence of interface dermatitis. 
So I think it's key to recognize the similarities between two entities and, you know, as a clinician using our best clinical judgment to uh, to uh, manage these patients who are complicated and, you know, such a heavy amount of immunosuppression. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Dr. Jacqueline Levine from UCLA Olive Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. Today I'll be presenting my poster, B3 Wear of Dermatomyositis Mimickers. So this is an interesting case of a 51-year-old female. She initially presented to the emergency room with one week of a pruritic rash, initially involving her scalp, but then progressed to involve her eyes, mostly surrounding her eyelids, her chest, and her posterior neck. We were consulted for evaluation of dermatomyositis given the distribution of the rash. On our initial evaluation, she denied any history of proximal muscle weakness, no history of ray nodes, respiratory symptoms, or dysphagia. Um, she also denied any family history of any known autoimmune disease and also denied um, any history of substance abuse. Um, on our initial physical exam, you can see here she had a well-demarcated rash um, located over her chest, her posterior neck, with these uh, intermittent scattered hyperpigmented patches. Um, she was also noted on exam to have these red patches with atrophic papillae over her tongue that we initially didn't really know what to make of. Um, of note, on exam, her motor strength was completely intact. Um, her initial laboratory findings um, were notable for an anemia, uh, she had a hemoglobin of nine, a thrombocytopenia, we had no prior labs on file for her unfortunately to get a baseline. She had a mild hyponatremia, some LFT elevation, and then um, she also was noted to have an elevated SED rate. So we initially sent off a full panel of markers, CK aldolase, um, looking for also markers of uh, dermatomyositis as well. However, as this was all pending, her clinical course changed. She subsequently developed altered mental status, hallucinations. Um, at first, we weren't really sure what to make of this, so we obtained collateral information from her family who endorsed a strong history of alcohol addiction and abuse. Um, so this clearly changed our differential in the way we approached the case. She was placed on CWA protocol and subsequently improved um, in terms of her altered mental status and hallucinations. Um, however, we broadened our differential to include vitamin and mineral deficiencies. We ended up sending off vitamin B3 or nicotinic acid, which came back low at less than 20, consistent with the diagnosis of pellagra. So that brings us to our topic today, um, which is pellagra. It refers to vitamin B3 or niacin deficiency. It's very rare in developed countries nowadays due to niacin-enriched flour. However, it can still be seen in homeless populations and can be seen in patients who abuse alcohol. Um, it typically presents with the four Ds, dermatitis, which is a photosensitive rash that you see here, um, diarrhea, dementia, and even death if it goes untreated. And it can also present with glossitis, which is what you see here as well. Um, the rash located along the neckline is typically referred to as Castle's necklace um, after the founder of the disease and treatment is supplementation over the course of several weeks. Um, we had a few big learning points from this case. The first was the cutaneous manifestations of pellagra very closely mimic those seen with dermatomyositis, so definitely keep it on your differential. Um, and then always obtain collateral information when the patient's uh, clinical picture doesn't fit with her history. Uh, thank you so much.
Hi, I'm Dylan Lee, PGBI 5, second year rheumatology fellow from the University of Arizona. And today I will be talking about treat to target implementation of uh, uh, disease activity monitoring scores in rheumatoid arthritis. So this talk was largely based off of a learning collaborative that was done with 18 different sites and was led by Dan Solomon of Brigham's and Rillums. Um, he did do an ECR talk as well as a poster, which you can reference um, later on if you would like. So really, a lot of the story and a lot of this work kind of goes back in history of when disease activity scores started. And it really was back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, when we were looking at ways of monitoring effectiveness of drugs. At that time, we were using a lot of gold. Methotrexate had just come out for, or started being used for rheumatoid arthritis. It had been around for a while uh, for cancer purposes, but not for RA. Um, we were trying different types of NSAIDs. Uh, TNFs were still in the lab, but at least they were on the horizon. There was being some mention of them. So we wanted some type of ability to uh, monitor and really assess the effectiveness of these new uh, medications. So back in 1987, they published in the Journal of Arthritis and Rheumatism a set of seven core criteria that would be based to the effectiveness of these medications. Then throughout the rest of the 90s, it was really being studied to see if they correlated with disease activity and if higher scores on these markers correlated with disease, and the answer was yes. So in the early 2000s, there was a lot of trials looking to see if we targeted uh, to reduce those scoring criteria if there was improvement in overall disease. And as we all know now, the answer was yes as well. So in the late 2000s, ULAR ACR recommended using a T2-target strategy in rheumatoid arthritis as it led to better outcomes. Early in around 2012, 2013, there was a several different studies that looked at, were we actually implementing it? Were we using treat to target And the answer was, eh, not really. Um, still, there was not overall, uh, I guess, acceptance, or I say more appropriately, use of treat to target um, So one of the strategies, or one of the goals of Dan Solomon was, is there a way that we can increase the adherence to treat to target He was very interested in learning collaboratives. Um, they've been around for a while. Um, it's overall a uh, method of using a group learning experience to help implement an idea. They used it a lot in hypertension, diabetes during the HIV um, uh, epidemic, uh, and were very successful. So there was thoughts of why couldn't it work for rheumatoid arthritis. So between, or in 2014, Dan Solomon um, had a study, which was a two-armed uh, study, one with a group of people using a learning collaborative and another group where they just went along their rheumatoid arthritis business as usual. And it was shown that with the use of the learning collaborative, treat to target was um, more adhered to and um, had a significantly increase in its use. So after that study, which was actually published in 2017, and that study was called the Traction Study, if you would like to go back and look further, uh, he was wondering if we could have a wider dissemination of learning collaboratives to use treat-to-target adherence. So in 2020, uh, he set off to make it a wider dissemination. Uh, unfortunately, at this point, COVID hit, so it made a very interesting uh, kind of twist to the study. Instead of now doing the learning collaborative in person, as Traction had done, we were now going to be doing it virtually. And also gave us an opportunity for another interesting secondary outcome of looking at treat-to-target adherence in in-person visits versus telephone visits. So the study was between 18 different sites across the United States and was close to 2,000 uh, rheumatoid arthritis patients. Not surprisingly, the results showed that 
treat to target adherence did increase with the learning collaborative, even if when it was virtual. So very similar to traction um, in that there was an increase in adherence. What was also interesting was the secondary app point, as I mentioned, which was the difference between in-person versus telephone visits. In the very beginning of the study, there was a significant difference between the two. There was an increase more adherence in-person visits versus telephone. But by the end of the study, they were not significant, the difference between the two. So overall, learning collaboratives were shown to be effective both when it was done virtually and in person, and also could be used uh, to help implement uh, treat to target even with telephone visits. There are a few different directions uh, going forward. Uh, does this increased adherence through learning collaboratives actually make a difference in rheumatoid outcomes? Likely yes, given that treat to target has been shown effective, but now just to see if because they were implemented during a learning collaborative, would that make a difference? And then further, another idea is should ACR or ULAR be helping manage some of these learning collaboratives and so we overall do a better job uh, using treat to target in our rheumatoid arthritis patients. Again, I just want to acknowledge that this was done as a larger learning collaborative and that you can uh, look at further uh, studies and talks by Dan Solomon and this year's ACR. Thank you. of Northwestern University. My poster is on my research looking at late onset scleroderma renal crisis. Scleroderma renal crisis, or SRC, is a rare but life-threatening complication of systemic sclerosis with one-year mortality rates ranging from 18 to 30 percent. SRC is considered an early complication of scleroderma um, expected to occur within the first four years of disease onset. However, case reports in the literature show that SRC can occur late in the disease. Little is known about this late onset phenotype of SRC. The objective of my research was to identify risk factors associated with late onset SRC and compare clinical presentation and outcomes between late onset and early onset renal crisis. This was a retrospective case control analysis of SRC cases seen at Northwestern Medical Center between the years 2000 and 2019. We had a total of 48 cases, of which six were late onset, defined as occurring after five or more years of disease duration. We compared late onset cases with early onset controls to assess for differences in demographics, autoantibodies, comorbidities, recent medications, SRC presenting features, and clinical outcomes. In our cohort, the late onset group developed renal crisis at a median of 8.5 years after scleroderma onset, while the early onset group had a median disease duration of one year. We found that late onset SRC cases was significantly associated with positive RMP antibody compared to early onset controls. Looking at medication use in the one month period prior to SRC, we found that prior ACE inhibitor use and corticosteroid exposure was significantly associated with early onset SRC, but not late onset SRC. Another significant difference between the two groups was in the proportion of patients presenting with hematuria, which was present in 75% of early onset cases compared to none of the late onset cases. And finally, looking at clinical outcomes, we found that 50% of patients in both groups had dialysis-free survival at the end of the hospital admission for SRC with no dif significant difference in the risk of death or dialysis initiation between the two groups. In conclusion, 12.5% of our total SRC cohort had late onset SRC, highlighting the importance of considering SRC on the differential
for any scleroderma patient with acute renal dysfunction, regardless of disease duration. Additionally, we found that positive RMP antibody may be a risk factor for late onset SRC. Thank you. It's the 19th of February, 2022. I'm Jack Cush. This is the Room Now podcast. I'm joined by my best friend and colleague, Artie Cavanaugh from UCSD. We are here in Maui at the site of the, room, the Rheumatology Winter Clinical Symposia, RWCS 2022. We just finished, um, and we're going to sort of wrap things up and sort of look at the highlights of this meeting. First, Artie, um, what's your take on the meeting? Well, I think it was great. It, it was a meeting, as a live meeting, although there were a lot of people also participating virtually. But there was a great vibe in the room, and I think it reminds us that while you can certainly get education remotely, boy, there's nothing like being in a room with colleagues where you get to discuss things and challenge each other and talk about the data and the implications. We all learn from each other, and we do that best in a personal setting. So as things are getting better in the world, it was great to see an audience full of people, and I think the vibe was really good that we all got to learn from each other. Yeah, and it showed up in a lot of different ways. The um, uh, the excitement of the audience, they were glad to be out. This might have been their first trip since uh, March of 2020. And um, the thing that really exemplified the enthusiasm of the audience was not only there are many questions from the microphone, but when we were doing our debates or panel discussions, we'd often poll the audience and ask them for their opinion yay or nay by show of hands. And normally when you do that at a big meeting like this, you're lucky if half the people weigh in, the other half are asleep. When we did polling, everybody raised their hand. It was almost like a 100% of a sample, which really said that I'm glad to be here. I'm, I'm voting yes, whether I believe it or not. It was really, I think, quite inspiring. Um, we begin the meeting um, every day at, at RWCS with a sort of review, a year in review for a particular topic. Artie and I always begin with a topic of rheumatoid arthritis and its year in review. We covered a lot of content, including a lot of discussion about the uh, JAK inhibitors and the safety issues around that. Uh, but one of my favorite uh, posters from or abstracts that we covered was that on pregnancy and how it's influenced either by disease activity and or therapy. So these are patients who have rheumatic disease and they look at pregnancy outcomes, adverse pregnancy outcomes, and the best determinant for the least pregnancy, adverse pregnancy outcomes was actually disease activity, more so than even drugs. Uh, the drugs, steroids are always a bad player. If a patient's on steroids throughout their pregnancy, that usually means they've got activity, and that's one of the reasons why you're giving it. But ultimately, it was um, disease activity that's a problem. Yep. There's, uh, as, as the saying is, which is absolutely true, there's nothing the better for having a healthy baby than having a healthy mom. And a big part of that is keeping the systemic inflammatory diseases under check with treatment. Yeah. Anything else from that session that you thought was good? Well, we, we sort of talked about the jackanibs. You can't not talk about the jackanibs these days, and they're certainly getting used much more, and there's some data been presented at ACR and ULAR looking at their utilization uh, in countries where they may have even more than we do available, and it's really picking up. But one thing uh, that we discussed throughout the meeting was the safety issue. The recent study, the oral surveillance study, the data of which was presented at ACR and then published in part also 
So generated a ton of discussion. And it seemed that throughout the meeting, when we talked about RA, when we talked about the Jack Safety, when we talked about SPA, when we talked about PSA, even when we talked about IBD, the Jack and Ib discussion came over throughout. And I think that's an example of where it's nice to have multiple topics so you can really carry that discussion through with different implications in different diseases. Yeah, and, and the audience is still, uh, uh, Eric Ritterman said at our final wrap-up that he's, he's concerned about the, um, how, what are people's perceptions about this data and what it really means. And when we ask the audience, what do you think of this data? First off, the data really only applies to at-risk people who are elderly, mm. right? And so that's not the majority of your patients on Jack. That's the minority. So there are a lot of people who felt that this news of cardiovascular events and cancer and VTEs, et cetera, really doesn't apply to their patients and it's not changing their prescribing habits. But yet, so I'll say it was a, a, a third, a third, a third. A third said, I'm not, this hasn't affected me at all. A third said, I'm really, really worried or, and I'm not, I'm using a little bit less. Actually, it wasn't that high. It was probably in the maybe 20% range. And then that middle group, kind of a larger group says, I'm concerned and I, you know, start making my way and need to see how this is going to pan out. Well, safety is super important. Uh, safety really touches so many of our discussions about therapies for all sorts of diseases. One bit of safety that just was very timely is we sort of talked about in a couple of the presentations, certainly in the IBD presentation by Dr. Mahadevan, in the review that of psoriatic arthritis that I did with uh, Eric Rudiman and Alexis Ogdi, we talked about combination therapy with biologics and targeted synthetics. and. People are sort of feeling their way into this. It used to be just the third rail after those important negative studies in early 2000. No one would touch combo therapy. But now what we're doing is really looking at, and it just became a, a press release now that a study, the Vega study in ulcerative colitis combining with a TNF inhibitor with IL-23 inhibitor, glimmab and gazelkimab, released its results, and we got to discuss that. It was a release that was at the ECHO meeting, just lifted the embargo, so we talked about that, and I think very encouraging. We're very focused on safety, and that suggested that you may get, the, the promise of biologics always has been, better efficacy and not more safety issues. Yeah, and I too was surprised at the discussion on combination biologics. I think what I took away from that is the door is opening, we'll see more research on this. Um, and uh, the practicality of this is I have a few patients who are taking, you know, a vetolizumab for their IBD and a, and a TNF inhibitor for their PSA, and I have to justify two expensive medicines on that basis, two different diseases. By the way, I do the same thing when I have a stills patient who's got horrible RA. They need this RA-specific biologic for their arthritis, but they need this still-specific biologic for their fever, systemic, blah, 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 blah. So the, sometimes that can help you in reimbursement. The other thing I heard, which I thought was interesting, is multiple people, including I think yourself, said nobody's yet gone down the path of combining a jack with another biologic like abatacep or a TNF inhibitor. And there's a little bit of data from registries, but those are just open observations. They're anecdotes. Still, it's, it's good to have the, the more information, the better. And we're seeing this very interestingly across fields because we, we see, as you said, uh, IBD, and ha that happens to have IBD-related arthritis, but also various forms of arthritis and allergic disease because our co colleagues in allergy are getting many more biologics available. If I had omelizumab introduced 
used over a decade ago. But then over the past couple of years for asthma, for atopic dermatitis, they have biologics that are incredibly potent. And so we will see more of those patients with combinations with things we're prescribing and things that they're prescribing. So one of the things that Artie, who runs the conference, does is he usually gives his faculty like really hard assignments. <laughs> and so um, I was sort of surprised to see that he asked Dr. Eric Ruderman to talk on neuroimmunology. And I thought, oh my God, I'm so glad it's him and not me. And turns out when Eric got on stage, he said, I'm so disappointed it's me and not some one of the other faculty because this is a tough subject, you know, neuroimmunology. What were you thinking when you gave him that assignment? Oh, it's, it's a, an emerging area. I think at many medical centers now, uh, the, the neurology service is really balkanized, of course. You don't have a neurologist. You have a migraine specialist and an MS specialist. And uh, now we're seeing people who are neuroimmunologists because there is a greater understanding of a whole array of uh, neurologic diseases that we had sort of not paid much attention to now in least in 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 some measure due to the development of autoantibody testing where you find autoantibodies to various uh, neurologically relevant surface molecules and now those are starting to find diseases so they're really dipping their toe in the water but there's so many conditions now uh, and so many of these tests, and uh, I, I asked Dr. Rudman to do it as opposed to having someone who is a neuroimmunologist because I think we really wanted to shake out the evidence, and I think he did a great job of that. What is the real evidence? And I think in some areas it's very clear, like the normalitis, opti normalitis optica with strong antibody association, still need to sort out the sort of therapies, but I think that it's, a, it's an emerging discipline that we definitely need to be aware of because they're referring patients to us in many places for our advice on treatment and just say, this is an autoimmune disease, neurologically based, but what can you help us with in terms of immune modulating therapies? And, and Eric showed a list of all the autoantibodies that the neurologists are using, and most of them are clearly quackademia. Um, <laughs> but you know, there were a few that actually were quite interesting. Like I, I like the stiff man syndrome, which he kind of described. They look like tin men, you know, they have this stiffness, it's truncal, whatever, associated with anti-GAD antibodies. Or, you know, the neuromyelitis optica, the old DeVick syndrome, transverse myelitis optic neuritis, being associated with the aquaphor and 4 antibodies as now you have a diagnostic tool that really has utility and can then help guide therapy. Uh, definitely a, a, an emerging field. And that was an exciting part of some of the other presentations. Uh, Dr. Postolova reviewed many different things in allergy, but one that she went out was urticaria. And urticaria uh, with, with new insight into the mechanisms of action of what we had always called anaphylactoid reactions, which were always sort of bizarre. Uh, radio contrast dyes, some antibiotics, uh, other compounds that would give uh, anaphylaxis appearing clinical symptoms, but not IgE mediated. And now there's much more of an understanding. I'd certainly encourage people to, to review that video because that's very exciting looking at something that we may be able to have greater interventions for going into the future. I, I remember when, when you came to Southwestern and started doing 
the clinical trials on biologics and, and you introduced the term anaphylactoid reaction, people sort of lost their minds. Well, is it anaphylaxis or not? No, it's anaphylactoid and there's a definition. And um, yeah, but uh, Dr. Poslova's re uh, lecture on that topic, urticaria especially, really, really good. Um, our Kahuna, which is the award uh, RWCS gives to um, uh, for a lifetime achievement in uh, education and rheumatology, went to Dr. Virginia Steen, who was here and lectured on a number of topics, including the history of scleroderma. But I, I, I took away from her something that really was helpful, and that is in her discussion of ILD in scleroderma and who should get some of the newer therapies, especially tocilizumab and uh, nintednib. Um, I like the idea that she really reminded us of the tocilizumab clinical trials which were done in early disease and that that is an agent for patients with early disease and ILD. That might be who you might want to try it in. Uh, and then maybe the nintednib actually is for more established disease, more problematic patients. Um, but I, I really enjoyed her presentations. Yeah, it's great to hear the, the scleroderma, the history, uh, especially going into the, the, the far past and then the past, uh, the near present, and then a little bit into the future. And it certainly is more promising than it ever has been uh, where we had always been hopeless. And now we're sort of, I think, chipping away at uh, being able to think of specific therapies for this important disease. Yeah. Um I like, there seemed to be a number of presentations this, um, this week um, that brought up eculizumab as therapy and, um, and where it may be fitting. It's not a drug that most rheumatologists are uh, familiar with. It's a, a monoclonal antibody against C5, um, and it basically blocks the activation of complement through C5. And, and its potential role in multiple disorders, and especially in the prevention of nephritis. Um, I think that I found that really interesting. I'd like to see a lot more on that in the future. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to know about, and we seem to use it mostly now in the in extremists, in those patients who are hospitalized with the these severe systemic disorders related to the overconsumption of complement. And it has worked well, but it could well be something to reach for uh, in less severe conditions. In the session that you ran on psoriatic arthritis with Alexis Agdi and, and Eric Ruderman, what do you think was the standout? What did you get more comments about from the audience than, than others? Well, I think everybody's still excited about new treatments. Uh, and if you have a list of available treatments, uh, it's amazing compared to 10 years ago, compared to 20 years ago, it's just absolutely earth-changing. So I think that's what the audience wanted to hear. Now, unfortunately, we don't have precision medicine, so we don't know which drug is best for which patient considering potential efficacy and also safety considerations, but still super exciting. And you know, the more options we have, the better. You know, the uh, excitement of the audience to attend and participate really shown through big time in these sessions that already runs called Bite Size Learning, end of the day, case-based discussions. I, I sort of lead the panel on hot seat. I take all our big name rheumatologists and put them on the stage and I give them sort of common day cases and let them fight it out. And it's really, it's not only just good entertainment, it's good education. The audience gets into it. Uh, you did the same thing on the next day when you did case presentations that people just brought up at the microphone and whatnot. That is a great way to really get people going. Yeah, well, all of us are smarter than, smarter than any of us individually. And uh, it's great to come to a conference with cases that you have a problem with and talk to your colleagues and get their opinions, which are going to be different one from the other. And then, you know, hopefully go back and make the best decision you can and then 
Come back and tell us what happened. Yeah. Artie, thanks for this review. Uh, there's a whole lot more. It's going to be on the rwcs.com website. That's r w-c-s.com. Um, you'll be able to see re uh, replays of these lectures. Uh, really worth a view. Um, make sure you tune into and or register for RoomNow.Live. It's coming up in a few weeks. Thanks a bunch.